You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think it was 20, around, almost 20 years ago when I first uh, got a Z-Sing catalog and Z-Sing would se- send me catalogs for books to buy and he had this little paperback advertised in there and it was, it, it was an imported paperback so you had to pay premium price for it and it was called Only Forward. And I thought, you know, this, this sounds kind of cool. I, I think I'll get this. And I got it, and it just amazed me. It was by this man named Michael Marshall Smith. And I hadn't read anything like it. And I still haven't read anything like it in the years intervening. And in those years intervening, that man who joins us right here tonight Hello. has written I don't know how many more books, all of them equally wonderful, all of them very different from one another. He writes with a a really fine literary sensibility, a sense of humor, and he knows how to keep you riveted to the page so that you will not put the books down except to look over your shoulder and wonder who the hell is watching you, who the hell is going to try to get you, who the hell is actually controlling your life because you have no control of your life whatsoever. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to welcome Michael Marshall Smith. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming out tonight. I think what we're going to do to start off is I'm going to do a bit of a reading. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what I'll do, I think what I'll do is I'll read a little bit from uh, my most recent book, which is called Killer Move. Uh, Now, Killer Move is primarily about a a guy called Bill Moore, who's a realtor in the Florida Keys. Um, He's got a good job selling condos. He's got a a wife who he loves, um, who's also very successful. They've got a lovely house. He's got pretty much everything you'd think somebody would want. But he's also becoming aware that it's sort of year six in a five-year plan, and that's beginning to bug him a little. So he's starting to mix it up a little bit. He's trying to find ways to advance himself in the way that we're all told that we can do by uh, self-help books and the uh, the Internet. Um, And then one day he turns up at his place of work, and on his desk is a card. It's a sort of business card size, and it's black, and it's just got one word on it in, ru- in white, and that word is modified. And from that day on, his life starts to change in first very small and significant ways, um, but then gradually it starts to snowball, and it gets larger and larger. And that's, that's the, the basic story. That, um, that's the main story uh, running through Killer Move. Having said all which, uh, I'm now going to read a bit that isn't about him. Um, partly because what happens to Bill Moore is, is a gradual transition and it would be dif- difficult to pick a bit out which didn't sort of mess up the transition. Um, also because what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the prologue um, so that if any of you haven't read it and decide you might want to, then I've saved you a bit of time. Um, it's a sort of customer service thing I'm doing. You can just go right in at chapter one. So uh, don't say I don't do anything for you. Okay, so what I'm going to read is, um, <clears throat> and I should stress this character does become relevant later on, the prologue from Killer Move. And that's the wrong piece of paper. He stands in a corridor. He's been there for nearly an hour. For many, this would feel like the final imposition, the last straw, the bitter end. 
something to ignite crimson threads of anger in the brain and provoke a tumble backward into the pit of clotted fury that consigned them here in the first place. It does not have this effect on John Hunter, however, and this is not just because he's always possessed certain reserves of calm, or even because this period is but the stubby tale of a far longer period of waiting. He has simply become aware, over the years, that all experience is more or less equal, and so he waits. The corridor is painted in a rancid cream, a color that is presumably supposed to be calming. You'll remember this place by it, along with a tang of rust and the orchestral complexity of a thousand mingled strains of male sweat. He has been offered a seat. He declined, deferentially, but without playing the fake submissive, a balanced performance he's had plenty of time to perfect. Waiting in a seated or standing position amounts to the same job, and so he stands. His mind is a perfect blank. Eventually a door opens and a bluff, plump man wearing a crumpled blue suit steps out into the corridor. Sorry for the wait, John, he says. He looks harassed, but in command. Inside the office are bookshelves crammed with case files and texts on criminology and penal theory. There is a window which affords a view over the main prison yard. The man with his name on the door has occupied this space for seven years. During this time, it is said, he has made significant improvements to conditions within the facility and has published four highly regarded papers presenting carefully quantified analysis of the results. He's also lost much of his hair, revealing a pate sprinkled with sizable moles. He sits himself behind a wide wooden desk. Minor crisis on D, he mutters, now averted or at least postponed until the gods of chaos pay another visit, which they will. Please have a seat. Hunter does so, taking one of the two large plush chairs angled to face the warden's desk. He's been in this office before. The desk, as usual, holds a laptop, a half-used legal pad, two pens, a smartphone in a leather belt clip, and a photograph of a woman and three children so strikingly anonymous that it seems possible the official bought the picture pre-framed, a set dressing, in order to present exactly as expected. Perhaps in reality and outside these walls, he is roguishly single, spending the small hours of the night cruising S&M bars. It's equally possible that the warden is simply what he appears to be. Sometimes, remarkably, that is so. He folds his hands together over his stomach and looks cheerfully across at the man sitting bolt upright in one of his chairs. So, feeling good? Very good, sir. Not surprised. It's been a long time. The man nods. He's privately of the opinion that only someone who's been incarcerated for 16 years can have any understanding of how long a period that represents, but he's aware this is not a fruitful direction for the discussion to take. During the course of preparing for three unsuccessful parole hearings, he's learned a good deal about fruitful discussion. Any questions? Any particular fears? No, sir. Not that I'm aware of. The counselling sessions have been real helpful. I'm glad to hear it. Now, I know you do, but I've got to ask. You understand and will fulfil the conditions of your release and parole, blah, blah, blah. Yes, sir. Don't want to see you back here, right? With respect, sir, the feeling is mutual. The warden laughs. In a way, he's sorry to see this prisoner leave. He's not the only malleable man amongst a population dominated by feral recidivists and borderline psychopaths, but he's intelligent and reasonable and has, most importantly, responded well to the program of rehabilitation which the warden has accentuated during his tenure, which is why the prisoner is sitting here now, rather than being kicked unceremoniously back into the wild like the rest of today's lucky few. Hunter has expressed contrition for his crime, the murder of a 28-year-old woman, and exhibited a sustained understanding both of the conditions and circumstances which led to the event and ways to avoid such triggers in the future. He said that he's sorry, 
and shown genuine awareness of what it is he's apologizing for. Meanwhile, the man sits in front of him, polite, silent, immobile as a rock. Anything you want to discuss? No, sir, except just to say thank you. The warden stands and the soon-to-be ex-prisoner follows suit. Pleasure. I just wish everyone in here could look forward to this kind of ending. People get the endings they deserve, sir, maybe. The warden knows this isn't even remotely true, but he reaches out and the two men shake. The warden's hand is warm and a little damp. The other man's hand is dry and cool. The prisoner is escorted, escorted along a series of corridors. Some are the pathways that have circumscribed his universe for the best part of two decades, routes between mess hall and workshop and yard that echo with the shouts and cage rattling of men, thieves and killers, parole violators and pedophiles, carjackers and gangbangers anywhere from 18 to 71 years of age, whose names and natures and varying degrees of moral deviance he's already started with relief to forget. A few call out as he passes, he ignores them. They're ghosts deep in the caves. They can't hurt him now. Subsequent corridors or foothills of the route out, the freedom side of iron gates and multiple locks. And as these start to predominate, the man experiences moments in which it is difficult to maintain the flatness of emotion that has been hard won. To walk these halls is to feel as if you are making unexpected headway in an endless maze in which you've spent a third of your life. To sense that you may finally be escaping the madness which had colonized every corner of your mind except for a tiny central kernel in which a soul has crouched, interred in time, for a period long enough to stage and hold four Olympic Games. In holding and release, Hunter signs papers under the supervision of correctional officers who treat him differently now, but not so very differently. To them, as to the world outside, this period of time will never be quite over. Once a criminal, always so, especially when your crime was murder. Murder says that you're not like the rest of us, or so it comforts us to pretend. A clear plastic packet of possessions is returned to him. A watch, a wallet holding $70 and change are the trinkets of a former life. He's shown to a wire cage room where he changes back into the clothes in which he entered the prison in view of officers and the other men who are being released. He's used to his every move taking place in front of other men, but he's looking forward very much to the moment when this ceases to be so. The clothes still fit. An officer escorts him down a set of stairs and into an open courtyard adjacent to the yard where he has taken his four hours of outside time every week. They walk across this space to a gate, and his gate is unlocked for him. He walks through it, into the world. A cab is waiting 40 yards down the road. The other prisoners released today will be ferried away in the back of a van. This man wanted real life to start right at the gate, however. He walks straight over to the car and gets in without looking back. Where to? The driver asks. Hunter names a nearby town. He rests back in the seat and stares through the windshield as the driver starts the car and begins the journey away from this place. He appears in no hurry to converse and neither does he turn the radio on. And for both of these facts, his passenger is grateful. Though he has no need to mentally rehearse what he's going to do next or the broad strokes of how this first day is going to be spent. He's done that already and so it's done. Hunter knows by now how important it is to keep his concerns and aspirations driving forward, leaving every yesterday behind. The past is the past, and inviolable as such. The only thing he can do in the present is drag you back. Almost nothing that happened within the high walls now receding in the rearview mirror will be allowed to escape with him. The beatings, the early nights of abject horror, the two attempts in the first month to kill himself, 
and later the decisions over who to program with and how much or little to get involved in the prison's interior worlds in order to avoid either being called upon to do other people's time or winding up on some gang's bad news list, an effective death sentence of infinite jurisdiction. That was then and in there. This is now and out here. The single thing that he's brought with him, the knowledge that has sustained him throughout the years but which also cast shadows over his darkest nights and hours, is this, that he was innocent of the crime for which he was convicted. 90% of men in prison make this claim, and pretty much all of them are lying. This man, however, was not. He didn't do it. There are details still to be worked out, what to eat first, where to pick up some clothes that don't stink of confinement, where to stay the first night. The main business, however, is already laid out in his mind. He's going to buy a gun, and then he's going to start using it. One of the things that strikes me about all of your work is the way that you have taken elements of crime fiction, and this is from only forward on, and woven them into something very different. And it never reads like mystery. It never reads, none of your books read, can be, I think, particularly easily described or assign a genre except for like, cannot put them down and really well written. So I'll I take like, those, they sound good to me. <laughs> but uh, the crime fiction element interests me. So uh, talk about uh, taking those crime fiction uh, bits, but reassembling them into something different. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit of a mystery to me where the crime stuff came from in the in the early stages, because you're absolutely right. I mean, e even only forward, which at first glance is a sort of quite surreal or science fictional sort of novel, does have quite a noir element. And I think, I think probably it's, if I think of it as anything, I think of it as noir, mm -hmm. um, because I think that's a, it's almost like a flavoring that you can add to anything. You can add to science fiction. I mean, romance possibly, I don't know. That might be a bit of a stretch. Cooking, that would be a huge stretch. Um, or maybe not, I don't know, maybe there's a book there, but we'll talk about that later. Um, I, think, I think what attracts me to noir is that it's very elemental, it's very visceral. It's about the things that actually sort of matter. It's about greed, it's about love, it's about guilt, it's about the stuff that tends to plague us in the small hours, the stuff that, that makes us feel very, very deeply. And, you know, what I'd done previously is I'd written what is generally categorized as horror short stories. I mean, they were of a particular type of English horror, which tends to be stories of unease and, and psychological horror rather than blood and guts and vampires and that kind of thing. And I wrote that, that kind of material for a few years and thought maybe it's time to start a novel. And I was very taken aback to find myself writing a science fiction novel. Um, something I've always been appalling at, continue to this day to be appalling at, is having any sort of game plan or career or planning. I basically just do what feels right at the time. And, this idea felt right to me, and so I went with it, and I just followed it. And I found that in addition to science fictional elements, and I hadn't read any science fiction in about 10 years at that time, there were little bits of horror which, which made sense to me, but also bits of noir and crime. And I, I, I guess it's because I, th I think in some ways, it, uh, to me, noir and, and mystery feels a bit like the blues. There's a, there's a limited core progression, but it's amazing the number of things you can do with it, and it always sounds good. There's always something right about it. It always hits those notes, and I think maybe that's that's one of the things that attracts me to it. Now, one of the things I think that you're really, really good at 
is your prose from the very get-go has always been really finely crafted and controlled. I mean, when I think of uh, reading only forward, that's a book you could read aloud many times. It's it's some of this stuff, it's like poetry. And even, uh, you know, your uh, this book, uh, Killer Move, uh, it, it, everything seems very much uh, like carved down. D is this the result, does this pour off the tip of your pen or does this uh, the result of uh, hours of sculpting? <laughs> Um, it, it varies, to be honest, and uh, this is one of the, you know, both the joys and the frustrations of being a writer. Some, some days you'll, you'll get up and your fingers are ready to go and it comes out your fingers and you think, well, where did that come from? This is an easy, easy job. It's brilliant. I love being a writer. And then there are the days where you think, farming, can't be that hard. Maybe I'll be a farmer instead. This is rubbish. I can't write anything. I don't know anything. I don't have any words. I don't have any stories. I hate it. Um, and... It's, it's about 50-50. And what is sometimes what the challenge is, is is looking back over a book that you've written and smoothing that out. Because you, when I go back and I do the first draft, I look back and I can see the days where it just came out. Often because I don't remember them. I actually don't remember chunks of the prose. I think I no recollection of writing that. And those are often the best bits. Whereas the bits where you think, oh, I remember writing that. Oh, God, do I remember writing that. Those tend to be the bits where you've you've ended up in a bit of a loop and you've ended up refining and refining and ref refining. And it, it's, a, it's a problem because, for me, one of the best styles is, is the style of no style in the sense that you don't want too often to people to notice that they're reading a book. You want it to be fairly fluid. You want to try and just grab them and say, I'm telling you this thing and, and just listen. On the other hand, sometimes you want, to, you want to be able to look back and say, yeah, it's a decent sentence. I hope that people will remember that. They might want to quote that and so on. It's, it's making that balance. And there's, so there's a balance between trying to be appropriate with language and the balance between trying to be as transparent as possible. So there's that balance and the smoothing out the progress of a book between the, the hard days and the difficult days. But, yeah, I mean, it's something that I'm, 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 I'm very aware of. I mean, I, I, you know, as you... As you you know, referenced when you started off, I've jumped all over the place in terms of the stuff that I've done. And the one thing that I hope is consistent is, is the way in which I say it. And so that is important to me and that is something that I work at. Well, no, it's it's absolutely clear. I always know when I'm reading a Michael Marshall Smith book. Is that okay if I call you Michael Marshall? That's the, that's the way I encountered you. So as long as it's polite, you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of the things that, that I think is uh, so interesting about your books is the way you deal with story and identity and memory. I think memory especially is a really important theme for you mm. because it tie, it's how we create who we are. And these are the stories we tell ourselves and what we ha often forget, but what your books often remind us of so well, is how good we are at editing the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. That's true. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I looked at that fairly explicitly in one book, One of Us, but I think you're right. It's something that's that's there as a, that's there in the background of, of, of most the things. And, you know, like a, like, like a lot of stuff, it's it's not... It's not something I consciously sit down and say, okay, this time I'm going to talk about memory, I'm going to talk about this or whatever. So it's something that, that tends to just sort of flow. But I think there are some – what bugs me about a lot of books sometimes is that they're, they're very they're, – you think, well, okay, that's kind of not realistic. And I don't mean realistic in the sense that, you know, people get killed and then 25 minutes later their bereaved widow is hopping about the place apparently fine. I mean – 
Uh, so what struck me when watching, because I, I got dragged somehow and I don't want to talk about it, into watching, thir- uh, into watching um, Sex in the City. It was my wife's fault. She dragged me in. I got sucked in and ended up watching the, just for years. But the th- something that, that bugged me a lot of the time in that, and then they did fix it a couple of times, is family. Very seldom were these people's families involved. And this is true of a lot of stuff. I mean, the, you know, the obvious example is that no one, you know, no one goes to the bathroom during a thriller movie. And, you know, they do. Um, and I think memory, this is a long roundabout way of getting back to memory, which is we, we are a construct of our memories and we're constantly informed by who we are. And the instant where we are now is the tip of a very, very large iceberg. Um, I saw quite a nice sort of slightly cheesy, but quite a nice sort of thing on the Internet today about sort of don't look back. That's not the direction you're going. And you think, yeah, that's nice, and that's life-affirming, life and I can see why, you know, why you'd like that. But the thing is, where we've been is most of us. And unpacking that and dealing with it and deciding how to shove some bits of aside, how to incorporate some bits of it, along with family, along with our relationship to friends, and along with our relationship to ourselves, which is often what a lot of us spend vast amounts of our day doing, dealing with ourselves. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very aware, and it's something that's very critical to being a writer because being a writer is a bit like having a small startup corporation um, because you've got the guy who's aware of the deadline and is saying come on come on come on work and you've got the creative guy who says you know what today's not a working day today's a staring out of the window day and tomorrow maybe two and a whole bunch of other guys the guys who stand in the kitchen forever talking in the water color uh, over the water cooler but annoyingly they may be the guy who comes up with a good idea in four months time so you can't fire them because he might be that guy um, and it's a bit like running a small business full of idiots, to be absolutely honest, or, or herding cats who refuse to be faced in the same direction. And I think that's actually quite like dealing with your own personality a lot of the time. You know, there is no, you think there's an I, you think there's a me, but there's not. There's all these contrary impulses and memories and pulls and desires. And so I guess a bit of that is what I'm trying, long way around of saying it, a bit of that I think is important to try to encompass what people are like. Well, yeah, that well, that plays an important part in the 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 plot of of Killer Move. In that, he's trying to did I do that? Did I remember? Do I remember doing that? And that, and as as things start to spin out of control, mm. he's not sure whether he's remembering what what happened or not. Now, you have a really interesting uh, sense of what makes a story, and I, I I'd like you to just talk about. Uh, when you construct your books, do you know what's going to happen, and do you do you have the the um, MacGuffin, and, and do you have the, the the core idea worked out in advance, or do you just kind of launch yourself off into the blackness and say, I'll figure it out eventually, in about three hundred pages? Yeah, more more of that, really. To be honest, I mean, it's it, really yeah. Oh I, my God, it tends to be a sort of let's leap off the cliff thing. Um, which is why I'm, I'm often late in starting books because there comes that moment where you think, okay, I'm about to commit the next year of my life, this chunk, this episode of my career to this idea. Um, and ideas are funny things because, you know, up until the, the, the literally the moment where you start like this, right, I'm going to write idea A, you're convinced that idea A is the one. And then suddenly idea B goes, really? You think? Yeah, yeah. I'm interesting. I could be great. You should spend the next year with me. Um, and it's impossible to make that choice because... Something I've, I've always felt is that writing a, no- a first draft of a novel is a bit like taking an examination in a subject that will not exist until you finish taking the examination. You don't, I mean, there are, there are writers who do it, do it differently. Um, everybody has their individual process, and there are some people who will draft out the entire thing ahead of time. I know a writer who, 
his novels are about 100,000 uh, words long, and he writes a 25,000 word synopsis before he starts. Soup to nuts, the whole thing. Every plot turn, blah, blah, blah. and then he makes the 100,000 word version. Now, I don't know whether he just puts three sentences in between all of the other sentences that he has, or whether or not he makes all of the sentences four times as long. I don't know how he does it. I've not got into that, that level of, the, of his process, but that would not work for me. Partly because, and I may be kidding myself here, but partly what I feel is that if you're going to drag a reader along for that long, there has to be a sense of danger and a sense of being pulled forward, but also falling forward. Good books make you sort of feel that you're falling forward into the next thing that's happening. And I think if the, if the, if the writer has a degree of that, then that will transport itself. That could, on the other hand, be an excuse for being a very lazy plotter. Or nobody could accuse you of being a lazy plotter. I mean, these things well, seem like they're uh, they're like tightly wound watches with gears and springs that uh, seem extremely well placed. You couldn't pull any bit out. Well, I'm glad they seem like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, and you know, as I said earlier about about prose, what I what I like to do is to, is to go through the fairly helter skelter first version to get it down, um, and then you will go back and you'll say, okay, what is this thing that I've wrought? How does it make sense? Um, and some of that is, is mechanistic. Some of it is to do with the craft of, of writing a novel. You've got to go back and say, okay, that doesn't make sense. How can I make it make sense? But a lot of it is quite intuitive. Um, in I've, I've, one of the books, I can't remember which it was, I think Spares or one of us maybe, I remember at one early stage introducing a character randomly from nowhere and thinking, okay, um, right, we'll do that because it seems to make sense. Um, and then literally six weeks and, and 40,000 words later thinking, oh, that's because you're the guy who comes along now and does that. And that process is, that's, when that happens, that's one of the, the fun bits. Um, it can be scary because a lot of the time you are slightly groping in the dark. And I don't, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to mislead you. I don't just start off, you know, one day thinking, right, randomly I'm going to write a first sentence. I do generally have some idea of where it's going. Very often I have a core idea, a thing that the... It's not so much a plot MacGuffin, it's more the sort of thing, what is the thing that's gonna get me from the couch to the Mac? What's the thing that's <laughs> gonna motivate me to write? And the strange thing is that very often those ideas end up being of very little significance in the end to anyone apart from me. In your work, and I think all of your work, there's an overwhelming feeling of otherness, of something outside of us, of uh, paranoia of being watched, of being controlled, and you craft this really well. And it's n and what interests me is that, on one hand, it's easy for us to experience that when we read your work. But when I was thinking about it, this is not something that is easy to create. That's not easy to summon up because it involves a lot of subtle cues that get planted in both the prose style and in the plotting. And I'd like you to talk about that. Is that, uh, are you just, are you yourself just waiting for for them to show themselves for when Romney rips off his face and reveals <laughs> his lizard underneath? Well, I mean, I'm not really supposed to talk about this, but I, I, I am actually part of the hidden conspiracy, which is running all of your lives. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> and it's all going off tonight. So, yeah, I don't know really. I mean, I, th I think I have always been drawn to conspiracies. And I think one of the reasons is that they feel true. 
and I don't know why. I don't know whether it's because they are true. I mean, it's a possibly a facile observation, but you, you could call religion something very, very similar. This, this sense that we all have that we're not in control, that there is more than we understand, and perhaps a hope that somebody somewhere has got their eye on all the balls and is controlling stuff and knows where the heck we're going. Um, for a long time, we had positive models for that. Now, possibly just in one of those sort of cultural cycles that happen, we, ha we now have negative models for it. And we think, well, actually, from what I can see, it all kind of sucks. And that probably means that whoever's behind the scenes doesn't have my best interests at heart, in which case that's how you end up with conspiracy. I don't know. Or maybe there is some huge reptilian global conspiracy headed by Mitt Romney. That seems equally credible, to be absolutely honest. David Icke. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure David Icke could get it together to, to, to run a global conspiracy. That man. I see that it's particularly bizarre in England because, you know, for years and years and years, he was just a sort of rather sort of tousle-haired sports commentator and then suddenly just went completely nuts very rapidly and started talking about the Queen being a lizard. And so, yeah, it's just one of those weird things, really, um, which I enjoy because, it, to me, a lot of conspiracy um, theories have a feeling of almost like epic fantasy. I mean, it's something that, you know, years and years and years ago, my father's an academic, and in the Brezhnev days, we went to um, Russia, so when it was still, you know, hardcore communist, um, and we went on a sort of uh, sort of camping holiday, because that's the kind of fun thing we did <laughs> with my dad. Um, it was either that, or we locked in a metal box for six weeks, so we said, hell, let's go to Russia. Um, and it was very, very interesting. And one of the things that was interesting about it was the fact that, in my recollection, and I think at the time, it had a slight feeling of almost being like a fantasy. There were things that were similar, and there were things that were different, and there was a weird disjunct, because whenever you, you see things that are similar but different, they make you more aware of what you are and what you feel. And I think, again, that's one of the things that come from, comes from the conspiracy idea. In terms of your specific question, in terms of how do you deliver that, um, I think like, like all novels, but maybe particularly, particularly thrillers or suspense novels, it's about the release of information. It's about how, you, how much you tell at any given time. You give enough to, to draw people forward or to tilt them forward, but you withhold enough that they don't feel, oh, that's all it's about. And so that's, I think, one of the bits that partly just comes naturally and partly you do have to go back and say, okay, and this is something that's particularly evident in screenwriting, that you've got to make sure that people get the right stuff at the right time. Not too much, or they'll get bored, but not too little, or they'll get bored. So it's just one of those balances. Well, speaking of screenwriting, I, I'm wondering, I know that uh, Spares was bought many, many years ago. Mm. And when it was bought, I was very excited to, to see that come to fruition. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> and did it really end up as that awful Michael Bay movie? My attorney has advised me. Um, <laughs> never to speak of this matter again. Um, I don't know. Um, th there, there are. Is that a conspiracy theory too? Uh, there's, there are some feel compelling similarities between a book written by me and a movie uh, directed by Michael Bay. I couldn't possibly comment. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the funny thing is, you know, it, for about a year before that movie came out. Um, the Island, I'm going to say it, hell. Um, people had been emailing me saying, have you heard about this movie, The Island? It sounds remarkably similar to Spares. And I just sort of thought, well, yeah, whatever. And then eventually some journalist got in touch with me and said the same thing. And also he had a sort of apparent trail between people who'd worked on the two things. And at this stage, I thought, okay, this does sound a bit funky. So I looked into it and I made two decisions. One, do you want to get involved in litigating its major Hollywood studios? No. And two, you know, it's a zeitgeist thing. 
Um, I mean, it turned out there was some Canadian filmmaker who'd made a short movie about the, almost exactly the same idea 15 years prior to my book. So uh, ideas are cheap, is mm. the thing. Um, you know, one of the jobs of being a writer is to, is to, is to basically come up with is an infinite number of ideas. Ideas are, tend to be quite simple. It's gearing yourself up to writing them down. That's the job. Um, and so I think you can spend your entire life saying, oh, well, somebody stole my idea. Or you can say, okay, next idea, let's get moving. That makes the most sense. And also, too, I think that the experience of reading a book is seriously different from the experience of a movie and seriously much better. I can go back and visit uh, places in all of your books, in, in Spares and in One of Us and the the cities and Only Forward mm. uh, and the the McDonald's McDonald's <laughs> incident yeah no it's a funny thing I mean I got I got an email from a guy um, called Simon Durick who's a, a new director and he last year made I think a very a, a very decent um, short movie of a short story of mine called Later and he he has long been very interested in doing something with Only Ford and he sent me a um a, a 50 page document on that yesterday and I read through it and he's, he's done some good thinking there's work to be done but he's done some very very good thinking on it and it would be kind of exciting to see that happen but to be honest like you I have that book in my head and I can picture large large chunks of it because I will never write a scene anywhere unless I could basically render it for you in three dimensions and so I have very strong pictures of all the locations do I necessarily want to see some actor doing it do I want to see it conjured within the the confines of CGI at the present moment I don't you know it's funny you know you sort of you want you want the cash obviously um, and you know obviously the fame and and actually you know, what am I talking about it's a fantastic idea but it's <laughs> books have a sort of longevity and a personal thing there's a there's a very group experience about watching a movie because you're all seeing the same thing of course you have different visceral reactions to it and you have different memories of it and it'll fit differently into your own personality but there's something about the one-to-one engagement that you have with a book and that each person can then go away and, and, and in real time savor and make a part of themselves, which I think is utterly unreproducible in any other format. That said, um, are you working on, uh, now, I, I read at one point that you were working on a TV series. I'm always working on a TV series. Um, every now and then, just when life seems like it's going too smoothly and like I'm having too much fun, I say yes when somebody asks me to do some screenwriting. Um, for a, a while back, my wife actually banned me from screenwriting um, on the grounds that I was clearly lousy at it. Remarkably, okay, that's not true. But what, what would happen was that I would finish a book and someone would say, do you fancy adapting somebody else's book or working on a TV series or whatever? And I'd say, yeah, hell, why not? And I'd work on it. And they, of course, always say, we need this in three months. It's go it can't go longer than three months. Ten months later, when you were on draft 75, they would, you'd knock on their door one day and they would just disappear. And people would say, no, they were never here. Their project never lied. What are you talking about? You know, um, at which point you think, Christ, I'm six months late starting a book. And this happened enough times that, that my wife, who only has my best interests at heart, said you might want to not do that for a bit. Um, and so recently I have done a little bit of it because they're projects which are key to me. If someone wants to do an adaptation of, of something of mine, or if it's an idea that I think I can really work with, then I'll dip my toe into it. But to be honest, I think writing, is, writing prose is very, very different to writing screenplay. Almost nobody has made a success of doing two, and it's actually it's a huge degree of hubris thinking just because you can write prose, you can write screenplay or vice versa. They're very, very different disciplines that involve storytelling in a very different way. And <clears throat> I am increasingly of, this, of, the, of the suspicion that prose is what I should concentrate on.
I'm ha perfectly happy with you concentrating <laughs> on prose. I, I have a box full of books that speaks to... Uh, well, you say you should have two or three boxes by now. <laughs> That's my point. <clears throat> You've written a lot of short stories, and I'd like you to just talk about, you know, when you know something is a short story and when you dash that off and, and when you decide, well, maybe this is a novel. Do you know that in advance? or Generally, yes. Uh, I mean, there have been a couple of times. Um, I read a short story called To Receive Is Better, and when I finished that, uh, and it was then published, but I thought, actually, there's, there's, I can do more with that, and that became Spares, in effect. I also wrote a short story called Remtemps, which even before I'd finished, I thought, no, this is much bigger than that. I, I never even published that short story, and it became one of us. Um, but most of the time, ideas announced themselves as as one or the other. It wasn't always the case. When I first started writing, for a long time, I only, well, two, three years, I just wrote short stories. And that was all I was doing, and I was very content to be doing that at that time because I didn't feel that I was ready to, to tackle a novel. And I wrote some very long short stories during that period, and there was a kind of narrative which I used then, which I don't so much now. I, I write fewer short stories now, and when I do, they tend to be quick hits. They tend to be, here's an idea that I want to come in hard and fast, do, and stop. Or they tend to be atmospheric things. Um, or they're, they're sometimes little ideas that I just think, I can't realistically see that fitting in one of the kind of novels that I do now, but I want to get it down, so I so I, I do it that way. Um, I think there are certain genres, and I think I think horror is one of them, where the short story is the best is the best way of doing it. Um, I mean, I mean, I'm a long-term massive fan of Stephen King, but I don't see his novels as being horror novels because I see them almost being sort of dark fantasy because I think horror or terror in particular is a very short-lived emotion. Mm. If you're terrified, then either the thing kills you or it doesn't, in which case you relax and go get a coffee or something. You know, it's, you can't sustain terror for 650 pages. That becomes something else. Whereas in six pages, yes, you can. And so that's why I think it is a question of saying, okay, I have a number of tools, short stories, novels, different genres, this idea has presented itself to me. What is the best way of, of trying to be true to it? Now, you're, um, you've, you've written, one of the things I, I really liked was your, your trilogy, uh, the Straw Man trilogy. And I thought that was a really interesting idea behind that, which we don't want to necessarily talk about. Mm -hmm. But I'd like you to talk about finding, you know, that one book was not enough. And it looks, seems like there might be more, too. Yeah, I mean, that, that was interesting because I'd never, I mean, uh, Strawman was a big change for me in a number of ways, really, because all the, all the books I had written previously had been first person throughout. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and for a long time, I had thought, that I might be interested in doing something about serial killers, which, you know, without giving anything at all away, is, is one of the core things that, that that trilogy is about. And a number of ideas came together, and I thought, okay, this is what I want to write at this stage. And a number of things came from that. One is that the, the style that in which I very often write now, which is a first-person narrative, but also additional third-person narratives. That's the first time I did that. And also, I wrote it set in the present day. And I also cut quite a lot of the humor that had previously been in the previous books. And I did so deliberately because serial killers are not very funny. Um, what they do is not good, and we do not want to trivialize it. And it seemed to me that, that having too much wisecracking would not necessarily be a good thing to, for doing that. And also setting in the future, yeah, I wanted to try and make some fairly serious points about 
serial killing and about murder and about neurotic obsession and about certain elements of society and human nature. And it's not necessarily the case that setting it in the future does this, but it can, if you, if you combine that with a bit of humor, it seemed to me that you would just distance the affect. And so I made that decision to sort of, to try and concentrate it in that way. I've entirely forgotten what your question was, sadly. I've just, I've just been talking for ages. What was the specific <laughs> question? Uh, how did it become three books? Ah, sorry, yes. Um, you were quite clear on that. Um, it happened stanchial. I got through to the end. Of, I thought I was just going to write a, a, a one-off single book because that's what I'd done up till that point. And only on the edit did I think, I'm not done with this. I'm not done with these characters. I'm not done with the ideas, particularly the characters. The characters are ones that I really, really enjoyed writing, and I just felt that I wanted to go back to them. Um, and it was quite a big decision for me because one of the one of the things that I enjoy most about writing books is coming up with the new characters, coming up with a new world, coming up with a new locale, starting again in effect. Um, and to say, well, I'm going to I'm going to go back and work with these people again, felt strange in some ways, but I really enjoyed doing it, and I did it another time after that. And yeah, I may well come back to them at some stage. I do sometimes. I, pretty much every time I sit down to write another novel, I'm sort of thinking. Is this when I write the new straw man book? And it's never quite been the time, but I, I, I suspect at some point it will be. You mentioned something that interests me because uh, you talked about creating the world, and I think that's something that uh, makes all of gives all of your novels uh, a frisson of science fiction. In that, even though they're set, you know, something like Killer Move is set in the current day and has a lot of really interesting stuff about you know the way people you know, live with, you know, the, the looks of real estate and those kind of everyday stuff. Um, there's always a sense of, uh, I think, world building mm. in your books because you're taking, even if you're writing something that's really grounded and intense and, and set, you know, right in the here and now, you're also building something else into that here mm. and now. And so I'd like you to just talk about world building because you started out, I mean, the only forward is a absolutely, you know, perfect example of, of world building. Mm. And you've kind of like, what you've kind of done, I think, is uh, subtracted some of the strangeness out, but not necessarily the world building aspect. Oh, well, it's interesting. I, I, I hadn't considered that. I mean, there, there, may, be some, there may be some truth in that. Um, I think you know explicitly in the first in the first three novels, only Ford spares and one of us. I mean, you know, it's often said that you know science fiction is, is a medium through is a genre through which you know you, you you look at the present day through a prism of the future, and so basically you're trying to say stuff about today whilst whilst giving it that distant set in the future. And I think the ideas that underline those three novels um, did inform the world. Um, with science fiction, of course, you can have huge and, and ostensive fun with that. If, if you're saying <clears throat> something about social inequality or whatever, you, could, you can make that very, very concrete and manifest in the way that I, you know, I, did in, in, I did in spares. With stuff set in a consensual reality or the present day, you don't have that freedom to just go nuts. Um, but nonetheless, either consciously or maybe unconsciously, the ideas are going to inform the world which you're creating. So it's possible that in Kill and Move, because there is that sort of conspiracy going behind it, that sense that our reality is a construct of our own sense of ourselves and that the internet is beginning to make slight inroads on that by, by transporting some of our sense of self into, into very sort of virtual worlds that maybe, to be absolutely honest with you, unconsciously some of that informs the world and the feeling that, 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 that comes in the book. You know, as I said before, 
I would I would love to sit here and, and say you know every single thing that happens in these books is a result of extreme genius, um, uh, but some of it is just there because that's what I wrote, and I hope that it sort of works out. Uh, you have a new book coming out. Is it done yet? Are you working for my publishers now? Um, it's uh, <laughs> it's very very nearly done. Apparently the um, <clears throat> the galleys are on their way to me. Um, oh, good. Yeah, I mean for the, for those who aren't. Um, familiar with the process, the galleys are what I think of as the galleys of doom, because by this stage you have written the thing, or the damn thing, um, you've then edited it, maybe edited it again, maybe edited it again, you've sent it off, you've then sent the copy edit, where some very bright, well-meaning person says, do you really mean this word? You've used this word on page 74, and you've now, and you just, and it's all good, because you have to have this stuff, particularly, um, I don't know if you notice, I'm English, not American. I try to hide it, but occasionally it creeps out. And because all the books are set in America, I need to make sure that that someone straightens that out and makes sure that I don't make some hideous error. And I'm sure there's one in every book, but they do a good job of it. Anyway, my point is, you get to the end of the copy edit, and then the galleys come. And the galleys are where you see it printed for the first time as an actual book. And so it's very interesting from that point of view, and you do see it in quite a different way. It's like when you write something on screen, if you change the typeface, trivial things like this do actually make a difference. And so it's interesting from that point of view. On the other hand, for me personally, and I think for a number of authors, when the galleys come is the point where you think, I hate this book. It's terrible. I wish I'd never written it. No one will ever publish it. And if they do, it's an error. Um, please don't make me read this thing ever again. But that is the point. That's your last chance to spot egregious errors, to make sure that it sort of makes sense. Because ultimately, you know, by this point, a lot of people have read the book, but their name isn't going on the front. And it doesn't represent a chunk of their life. And so you've got to sort of try and see through the hatred and, and, make, the, uh, <laughs> and make this final pass. And that, that, that joy, um, that loveliness is coming my way in the next couple of days, apparently. So. Uh, now, are those galleys that uh, reviewers get to, are those the same galleys, or is that a different set? Very often, the, the, the advanced reading copies that reviewers get will be off those galleys. Mm -hmm. So there may, there may be some errors of punctuation um, or sense um, left in the book at that stage. Yeah, but you, because of the, the, the process of publishing, you need to start feeding these things out before they're sort of properly printed. So, yeah, that's why it always says on, on advanced reading copies, bear in mind there may be some errors. Do not quote, et cetera. Yes, yeah. do not quote. Do not judge too harshly, please. <laughs> now, uh, Todd, can you tell us a little bit about it? As much as, and one of the things I have to say that the people who publish your books do a really damn good job of is not giving away the entire damn plot on the dust jacket, which is really important. One of the reasons why that happened is that, that I write a lot of the dust jackets, particularly oh. because of that. Um, there's nothing I hate more. I remember years ago reading a Peter, uh, buying a Peter Straub book. Um, and Peter Straub, at his best, is a, is, a, is, a, is a brilliant, beautiful writer. And I remember picking up a book of his, which um, a publisher had brought out. And it was a new novel. And I thought, I didn't realize it was a new Peter Straub novel. Fantastic. And I read it. And I read the first chapter. And it was beautifully crafted and, and, and elegiac and didn't quite make sense in the way that a lot of Straub stuff did. And I read the second chapter. I thought, huh. Wow, he's really pushing it out there this time. Whole new bunch of characters, slightly different voice. Read the third chapter. New bunch of characters. Different town. By the fourth one, I had twigged that it was a short story collection, <laughs> which they had because the, the received wisdom is that short story collections don't sell. They had 
just lied about, basically, um, to make it look like a novel. And I, 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 there was another, again, I don't know what, obviously the copy editor at, at this particular publisher really had it in for Peter because there was another novel, I forget the name of it, where basically on, on the back cover there was an actual error that said, that implied, strongly implied one character died. And so I sat all the way through the book thinking, ooh, it's going to be sad when this character, hang on a minute, they've not died and they're finished. Um, and so it's it's a big deal because again it's what it, it it speaks to what I was saying earlier in terms of information delivery, making sure that or trying to make sure that people want to read it without overselling. It's like when you see trailers for movies now. You sit there for, after four minutes, you think, well, that's just saved me nine bucks because I know what the entire thing is about. <laughs> so I'm not going to bother going to see that. And so I'm glad that you say that because it, it's something that, as you can probably tell, bugs me very specifically when they when they when they get that wrong. Oh yeah, I remember it was uh, that I read a. Uh, the UK version of Peter Hamilton's Fallen Dragon mm -hmm. doesn't do it, but the tour version, the US version, they just give away the huge surprise in the middle of the novel. They just yep. give it away on the dust jacket. I'm just thinking, well, you just, uh, your audience can just skip the first half of this novel now. Yeah, and I don't know why it is. I don't know whether why they, maybe the perception is that people actually don't enjoy things in a linear sense. You know, I mean, I think one of, one of the great things about novels is they are extremely linear. You start at this point and then you're, you're taken through to that point. Unlike a lot of media now where you basically can hit, you can skip back and forth and you can do stuff. And maybe the perception is that people don't want surprises. They don't want to have to wait and figure it out. They want to be told, okay, this is a novel where a guy has an affair with somebody and it works out like this. You like it. You like that kind of stuff. Okay, there's 350 pages before this happens, but it's okay. It'll be that. Maybe there's that thought. Maybe it's just not that considered. I mean, I've, I've sat and had lunches with editors where they've said, oh, I've just read this great book. It's, and then they will for 10 minutes tell you every single thing that happens in the book. And I don't know whether it's because of their job. They just sort of lose focus sometimes in terms of thinking that's not the experience. The experience is that you're led through. And that's the, the, one of the key things about the, you know, the old school linear experience of reading novels. Um, and I think that's something that, that remains very important. I mean, I know people who, and I've been encouraged at times to try doing things like a sort of multiple choice novel or an interactive novel, or all these kind of things. And I'm sure good work can be done in that way, but it's not for me. I don't want that. If I read a book, I want to sit down, almost like a kid, you know, Indian style, and say, okay, tell me a story. And then have them take over my mind and tell me that story in a linear fashion. So. Well, that gets to your sense, I think, of uh, transparent prose that makes that reading experience completely uh, seamless. You're not even, when, in the best books, you're not even necessarily aware you're reading the book. You're just mm -hmm. in the story. And I think that, uh, in particular, your, your, your prose. And I, what interests me, too, is that I think that we're at a point in um, American literature where uh, Books of your of this genre, which you would might call a thriller, um, it's often just been something that you would ha heretofore it was something you'd put on a spin spin rack in a paperback at the back of a liquor store. Mm. And I think that at this point, and again with your novels, we're reaching the point where uh, this kind of novel that is tense and intense and and has a lot of plot is also uh, has a, a lot of literary value and, and talks a lot about where we live, how we live, why li we live, and what we do. And I think that's, it's really interesting to see that happening. And I th as I say, I think that your stuff is among the most, uh, the finest versions of that. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's, that's very kind. I mean, I, I, you know, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I, for a long time, it's driven me nuts, the, the sort of, the ghettoization of, of what's 
tend to be called genre fiction and this idea that, you know, <clears throat> okay, it might be quite exciting to read a, a, a mystery novel or a horror novel or a science fiction novel. Yeah, science fiction will give you that sense of wonder, but, you know, they have no real people in them. Horror will scare you, but it has nothing to say about society. You know, a thriller will, will, will beguile a train journey, but it has no insight on the human condition. And, and as you know, and as a lot of readers know, this is, this is just simply wrong. And I've always felt that, you know, what I'm most interested in, to be honest, is an idea that carries me and hopefully the reader through, but also trying to say some stuff about what it is to be alive and what it is to deal with people and what it is that motivates us and scares us and makes us happy and, and is perplexing about, about the universe and about being alive which sounds like I should want to write slim literary novels about how tough it is growing up in Brooklyn, but I don't. I want stuff where spooky stuff happens. I want post-apocalyptic stuff. I want conspiracies. I think if you've got that range of colors available in the palette of, of, of ideas, why limit yourself to just doing it in black and white unless you can make a very good, important, unique point through doing it in black and white? So. I, th I, I hope you're right. I hope that there will be a gradual opening to the idea that actually just because something sells a bunch of copies, just because something has, has actual events in it. Um, I, years ago, I was lucky enough to be nominated for some award, and it was, it was a library-style award, and it was um, voted on by <coughs> people who took books out of libraries, and it was basically for thrillers, you know, books of that nature. And a bunch of us turned out. I didn't win. Holland Coburn won, um, which is fair enough, I suppose, but it still rankles. Anyway, um, the award was given out by a guy called um, Alexis Sale, who I think is zero profile here, but he was, a, he was an alternative comedian back in the 80s in England, and he sort of reinvented himself as a literary novelist, by which I mean his books were really in. And at one point during his speech, when he was, he was giving out the thing, he said, well, you know, and bear in mind that he's, he's, he's giving out an award to thriller writers in front of an audience of people who like mysteries and thrills. And he sort of said this thing about, you know, I, you know, what I don't understand is why all your books are so thick. And sadly, I didn't have the, the whatever to shout, because we have to put some plot in them. <laughs> we can't just have a vague musing about, how, what, you know, how, what a downer it is to be, you know, middle class. We've actually got to have some events and some plot and some, and some stuff. And I think if you've got the freedom to do that, people care about that stuff. Put it in. Put in some car chases. Put in whatever it is. The job of a writer is, is very, very simple. It is to get people to buy a book and then get them to the last line and feel they haven't wasted their time. And whatever it takes to do that, whatever it takes to do that most beguilingly and thrillingly, put it in there. And with that, I think we'll conclude this portion of the interview. Do we have any questions? I briefly acted um, a long, long time ago. I was not good. Well, thank you. I, 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 who knows if you know if it all goes wrong, then maybe I'll 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 I'll, I'll tip. I'll, I'll move down to LA and and, and no, it's not going to happen. Um, I don't know. It's um, I think I think acting involves probably a degree of being able to be unselfconscious in your projection in a way that I would personally find very difficult to do. I think one of the reasons why I enjoy writing is that you can do it 
alone. Um, you don't do it in front of people. You sit there and it's basically you and a computer and you can say, what happens now is entirely down to me. What I say, what I think, what everybody does is down to me and nobody's watching me yet. There comes a point, and you know, Stephen King puts this very well in his book on, on writing, which is called On Writing, and he says the first draft is you. It's closed door. It's all about you. And then when you come to the second draft, you have to open the doors. It becomes public and you, you then take that. You, you get both the, the, the pleasure, but also you take the hits of exposing yourself effectively not literally because that's wrong but in that in that sort of creative way and I don't I've never been good at doing that in real life which is why I, I'm happy to do it on the page but thank you for, for, for thinking that and if, if you happen to be shooting a major large budget movie and you want a slightly rumpled looking Brit then you know I'm your man the second part is have you considered uh, doing the screenwriting or the novel, so that it might dangerous though that might be, so that it would turn out more like the way you envision. Um, there are two reasons why I won't do that. Uh, one of them mechanical, and one of them one of them sort of more personally personal. I've, I've, a number of years ago, a book of mine called The Intruders was optioned by the BBC in England. Um, it's now just been re-optioned by the BBC in LA and so there might there might be a second go for it but and it was optioned pretty soon after I'd finished writing and they optioned they asked me to, to develop it and start writing the scripts um, this was another one of those examples where it looked like it was going to be a quick job and then 17 years later nothing had happened but something that I discovered during the process of that is that I hated it because adapting other people's novels is something I've done and quite enjoyed but adapting your own stuff is a very strange process because I just spent a year doing it that way. They, and it was, a, The Intruders is set in the Pacific Northwest and Los Angeles because it was the BBC, they wanted it set in England. So one of the things they wanted done was for a an LAPD cop to be changed into a British copper. Now, there is, the resonance of an LAPD cop is a very particular, very noir resonance, which does not equate to a, a British copper. And there was a whole bunch of stuff like that. and. You know, I, I've merrily done this with, with other people's novels in adaptation, saying, right, get rid of that character, put those two characters together. We don't need that location because it's a pain. And when you're doing it with somebody else's stuff, you, you can do that. And when you're doing it with your own stuff, it's like pulling teeth. It's like punching yourself in the face, and it's not fun. And so I don't want to do that again. The more mechanic um, reason is that if you have your book optioned by, you know, a production company, what you want is for it to get made. The way in which it will get made is by, generally, the biggest name talent, the best talent, the most bankable talent, the most proven talent being attached to it. So what you want is some alias screenwriter on the job, someone who's just off, fresh off the back of two great hits and everyone will take seriously and give it a following wind. I, you know, I see this very often with, with people who they get their, their book will be optioned by a production company, they'll say, well, we're not going to give you quite as much for the option as we generally would, but we'll give you the chance to write the screenplay. And that's effectively saying, if they're an untested screenwriter, we're going to waste a year of your life and then nothing's going to happen. And so for both of those two reasons, both creative and sort of mechanical, it's not something I'm particularly interested in doing. Also because, as I said earlier, there's only, much, so, only so much time to write stuff. There's always a new idea. And the new idea might be the most exciting one you ever have. So why spend the next 18 months of your life rehashing the last idea, when you've got the chance to come up with a new idea. Thank you. You're welcome. Good questions. Peg? Oh. It's more of a comment than a question. Okay. About conspiracies. Mm -hmm. 
during the Watergate era, I was at a party, and this little boy who was about eight asked Dad what a conspiracy was, and he explained that it was things that force you to do things you don't necessarily want to do. And he looked at him and he says, oh, like gravity. <laughs> Interesting. Said, it's a force you can't see. He said, I don't necessarily want to have my feet on the ground. It's, he said, it's much more fun to be upside down. And he says that, but here we all are. <laughs> yeah. I, I just... That's very interesting. I mean, I think that's true. I, what I thought you were going to say is that the kids were going to say, what, like parents? Yeah. Which is a, an, another, another force that, that makes you do that. It's all around. There's, you know, there's, 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 there's morality. There's the desire to conform in public. There's, there are all these hidden forces. It's like, you know, there's all the, like we're a magnet, and there are all these other magnets that never quite touch us, and we're not aware of that are forcing us around. I think that's maybe one of the other reasons why conspiracy is sort of, of enduring fascination. Well, I love the idea that you... Uh, uh, booted earlier uh, of conspiracies as an inversion of religion. I think that's that's a, a makes entire amounts of sense and is also appropriately frightening. <laughs> well, I think it's true. I mean, I think I think you know one of one of the defining characteristics of, of humankind. I mean, possibly other species we don't know because they can't tell us. But one of our defining characteristics is pattern building. That we want if if things happen, we want to find a way of. Of, of explaining that, of, of, of encompassing it and containing it. If, you know, with, pe with people with no understanding of meteorology, 40,000 years ago, the lightning happens, there must be some exp explanation for it. There must be some reason for it. There must be some way of contextualizing this in a way that, A, won't frighten us, and B, we might be able to control, because we want to build patterns that we want to be able to control. We want not to be frightened. And the more we put together ideas, the more... I mean, there's a, there's a thing that David Mamet and possibly various other directors have said about the idea of an uninflected image. Rather than editorializing the whole time, rather than telling an audience or a reader what to feel, here is an image of this, here is an image of that. And let the viewer or the reader fill in the gap. And they very often will. Um, and I think a lot, of the, a lot of the religious feeling we have, a lot of the conspiracy feeling that we have, and a lot of the way in which we, we come to understand other people comes through precisely this tendency and ability to fit stuff into the gaps. Um, and that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. And it's, it's, it's cyclic, but I think now, right now, conspiracy makes as much sense to me as anything else. And it's fun, and it's interesting, and it's, it's, it's in effect modern horror, because horror is, is a way of explaining things in a way that sort of gooses us and says, yeah, but what if it's all about that? And, and that's, that's the function it has right now, I think. Uh, it's a, a good way to externalize our own insecurity. Mm. You know, we worry about ourselves, but it's, uh, it's much better to say they're out there controlling me instead yeah. of, well, I can't control myself. Yeah, it's always, it's always easier to blame somebody else and say, you know, you know what, I suck. Well, oh, there might be a, oh. I have a question, mm. kind of a personal one, but it seems like you have a lot of irons in the fire. Mm -hmm. and is that the way you operate best? I mean, does that work well? I, 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 I have increasingly few irons in the fire, to be absolutely honest. Um, partly because, like a lot of people, I think I was sold a pup in the idea that, you know, multitasking is, is something you should be good at. After long experimentation, I've discovered that I suck at multitasking. Um, what is far better for me is to focus on one thing and give it everything and get inside it. And I know particularly when it comes to novels, I cannot mess around with other things. I need to climb inside the book and get there and it'll get done faster, it'll get done better that way. Um, it's difficult because 
you know, a, a, a career as a writer is, is, is like any other, to a degree, freelance career. You always worry that the next job won't come, that the next idea won't come, the next opportunity won't come, and so you want to not let go of anything. But increasingly, I am sort of thinking, my, ex uh, my experience tells me, focus wholeheartedly on one thing at a time, but maybe try and have shorter distances of time between them. So. I couldn't help but think about the concept of procrastination. Hmm. I'm going to think about that later. Pardon me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the reason why is I just finished reading a book about structured procrastination. Mm -hmm. What was really cool about it. Should you, should you have been working while you were doing that? Or was that <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that you do, when you procrastinate, if you give yourself permission to do it, you actually go and do all these other things that you wouldn't normally do or mm. get done. And eventually, this other thing that you put off does get done. And so it's like telling all of us procrastinators that it's okay hmm. because you will get these other things. You're getting other things done that you normally wouldn't. That is true. I, I mean, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's I, as a, as a member of the of, of the the New World Order and the Hidden Conspiracy, I can reveal to you now <laughs> that the internet was was designed by us um, because we disapprove of writing and novels and bringing the internet into being. We uh, we. Anticipate that within 10 to 15 years, no novels will ever get written because novelists will spend their entire time looking up cool sites and tweeting. Um, it's a difficult one because it's, you know, th there's, a, there's, a, there's a very gray area between procrastination and, and kicking back, you know. And sometimes you do need to, I mean, something that I've discovered to my cost a number of times is that getting all hardcore on yourself and saying, no, you didn't write anything today, you've got to write something today, sit, write. Um, what can sometimes happen when you do that is you end up going back over the stuff you've already done, polishing and polishing and polishing to the point where it becomes sort of hermetically sealed and you can't fight your way out of it anymore because you've just made this hard bubble. And sometimes you just have to walk away. And sometimes you have to not do something. Sometimes, I mean, something I, I do, and again, I don't know whether it's just self-legitimation, or, but it's, it works for me, is there comes a point where I know I'm, about, I'm getting ready to write a new book and I go into what I think of as flypaper mode and I will just open and yeah, I might spend an hour fleeting about the internet, and sometimes that'll be the that'll be the time that makes me think, ah, oh, that'll that interesting. It's a, it's a weird process, the, the creative process. Sometimes you do just have to let yourself, you know. But on the other hand, tweeting 18 hours a day is probably not the way forward. I don't mean you personally. I have no idea how often you tweet. <laughs> Um, it's not it's not a conscious decision it's not me thinking you know I should write more women um, because I think that I, I, I think the character should always serve the book to a degree um, you should have as many characters of, of, of the right types to try and get the story to coalesce and it may just be that in the last couple of books there's been stuff that I felt needed to go in there that, that was more relevant to women. It's always tricky for a man because you're never sure how well you're doing it. And people will sure as hell let you know if they feel that you're not. Um, so I don't know. I, it's not conscious, but I hope, you know, like a lot of these things, like I was saying earlier, I think to try to, to mirror experience in as broad and hopefully quasi-accurate way as possible is, is important. And so, yeah, I, you know, I, I, it's easier for me to write men because I am a man. 
um, but a book that is only about the concerns of men and only seen from a male perspective would be a very two-dimensional and tedious book. So yes, I, I, I do feel happier when there are female characters in there and I just have to hope that either my intuition or my first reader, who is my wife, will call me if they are, are two-dimensional or, 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 or rubbish, as she likes to say. So. Well, that's that's very kind. Thank you. Uh, it's uh, again, teaching is not something I've I've, I've ever sort of done. Um, certainly not children, because they really are scary. I mean, you talk about conspiracy theories and so on, but being faced by you know thirty sets of beady eyes, all the graduate students. Well, it's it's you know it's it's. I don't know. I think I think like maybe like a lot of writers, I'm shackled by the faint lingering suspicion at all times that I don't really know what I'm doing and that sooner or later someone will stick their hand up and say <clears throat> you don't know what you're doing we know we're just waiting for you to work it out and so that would mitigate against that but thank you that's, that's very kind and I, I hope some of what we've discussed courtesy of very interesting questions has, has been helpful and that of course is the final conspiracy <laughs> that guy waiting to tell you <laughs> We've been speaking with Michael Marshall Smith. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Great, thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.